You are listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, from our Counterculture series, a verse-by-verse study of the Sermon on the Mount. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Now here's Pastor Nick. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out the foundational principles of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of him. And what Jesus lays out for us here is a way of living, a way of being, a way of relating to God and to others, which is absolutely countercultural. It really, in many ways, flies in the face of, of everything that our culture says and believes and teaches us. You know, the fact is that if you want different results, you've got to do different things. I remember I had this one friend who used to always say this saying. He said, if you keep pushing the same button and there's no peanuts coming out, well, then maybe it's time to try pushing a different button. And I think that's kind of where our society is at, don't you think? As as a culture, that's where we're at. We've been pushing the same buttons for a long time, and no peanuts are coming out. And it's time that we push a different button. And Jesus here is going to show us a different way, a way that is counterculture, but a way that he promises is the way that leads to true life and true fulfillment and true joy. In this way of following Jesus and being a disciple of him, it is countercultural, But it is the way that leads to true life, true joy, and fulfillment both now and forever. Today, this morning, we come to what is really almost like the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount. There's almost no other part of the sermon that is more challenging in which the Christian counterculture is so apparently countercultural. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. The title of today's message is The Law of Love. You know, America is an interesting place. I read in the uh, Washington Post an article about, you know, how different countries' students stack up against each other in standardized tests. And so American high school students, on average, they average around like 15th to 20th, you know, on these standardized tests compared to other students from other countries in the world. But when it came to self-esteem, America just blew everybody out of the water. Like, we might not be as smart as they are, but we're way more confident about ourselves than they are, right? Like, whether we should be or not, we feel pretty great about ourselves. That's what it comes down to, right? Like, whether it's justified or not, we feel awesome about who we are, right? So what we lack in smartness, we make up for in self-confidence, in other words. We may not actually be good, but we sure do believe that we're good. In fact, we believe we're the goodest, right? And uh, now, so we left off, and how does that apply to what I'm saying? Here's, here's what, how it applies. And we left off in our study of the Sermon on the Mount last week in the middle of a large section in which Jesus is talking about what it means to really be a good person in God's eyes. And I think this is a very pertinent topic for our day and age and especially where we live here in America because most people in our society, like I was trying to illustrate there, believe that they are good people. Most people believe, oh, I'm a good person. Even people who really shouldn't believe that they are good people, right? Like even bad guys think that they are good people in our society. And, and so, you know, the question is, really, we have to define, okay, how good do you actually have to be to be considered a good person? How good, what's the standard that God has in which he says, okay, you are a good person according to this standard? Like what is the standard? You know, I I said last week, and I'll say it again, 
polls done of American society show that over 60% of Americans believe, are very confident that when they die, they will go to heaven. And the number one reason given for why these people believe that they will go to heaven is because I'm a good person and I've never done anything that was all that bad. Now the question is, okay, but there has to be a standard by which we define what a good person is. And how good do you have to be to be good enough for God? And so here in this section, Jesus is tackling that question. He's answering that. What does it mean to be good in God's eyes? And what he told us is that to be good in God's eyes, it isn't just about what you do outwardly. It's just as much about what goes on inside of you inwardly, in your heart and in your mind, in your motivations. In other words, Jesus is telling us that what matters is the heart of God's commandments. That it's not just outward, strict, technical obedience, but there's a heart to the commandments. And, and in order to actually obey the commandments, you, actually, you have to actually get to the heart of the commandment and obey the heart of it. And what is the heart of God's commandments? It is what we might call the law of love. That's our title again this morning. So Jesus put it this way. He said this, All of the law and the prophets can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. It, what that means is that the point, the purpose, the goal of each and every one of God's commandments, the heart of all of the commandments, every single one of them, is love for God and love for others. And so what that means is that to the degree, uh, so the degree to which you are truly following God's commandments is measured by how much your actions express love for God and love for other people. Let's look at some examples uh, as we go on. Jesus in this section gives six examples. We looked at two of them last week. We're going to look at the next four this week, which will bring us up to the end of chapter 5. So please read with me Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So I remember growing up, and, uh, you know, I remember noticing and thinking, and now even as I reflect back, that out of all my classmates uh, and my friends, I only knew a very few, like I could count them on one hand, friends whose parents were not divorced. In fact, and what this means is that it was more normal for me growing up for my friend's parents to be divorced than for them not to be divorced. And I guess you could say that in our day and age, having a healthy, thriving marriage is countercultural. And it certainly is part of this Christian counterculture that Jesus is teaching us here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me add this. If you think that high rates of divorce are something that is unique to our day and age, you need to think again. You need to get some historical perspective on divorce because what you may not realize is that at the time when Jesus lived, divorce was rampant, super common. In fact, one historical commentator I read, he said that divorce in this society, not just in, in Israelite society, but in the Greek society around them, it was chaotic, Meaning that, that's just how rampant it was. And in some ways, their culture of divorce was worse than what we have here in our day. And let me explain to you why. Because divorce was, uh, it was very common in the ancient world, but it was not equitable. Meaning that men could divorce their wives, but women could not divorce their husbands. And so to be a divorced woman was a huge stigma. It made life incredibly difficult for a woman who was divorced, but 
a divorced man, to be a divorced man was really not a problem. Like it wasn't a big deal because men were the ones who did the divorcing and they could just get remarried and, and then continue on divorcing and do whatever they wanted. So, so for a woman, it was bad. For a man, it didn't matter. And men had the right to divorce and women didn't. And so for that reason, here's what happened. Divorce and even just the threat of divorce became a major tool of manipulation and cruelty that men would use against their wives in order to control them and subjugate them. I mean, think about it. He would basically say to his wife, or at least communicate to her in some way, if you don't give me what I want, when I want, and if you don't look good while you're doing it, then I'm going to divorce you and I'm going to go find somebody else. And it'll be no problem for me, but it will ruin your life. So you better do what I say and do how I want it. Because otherwise, you know, you're going to be stigmatized in society and your life will be messed up. And so they knew no woman wanted this, and so this threat of divorce and divorce itself, it became a tool of manipulation and cruelty uh, from men against women. Now, not all husbands were like that, but enough of them were. Uh, And the thing in Israel, right, was that they had an Old Testament commandment about divorce and marriage. And this commandment is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And what it says there is that it gives permission for divorce. And what it says is that if a man finds uncleanness, and that's the word it uses, uncleanness in his wife, then he can issue her a certificate of divorce and divorce her. Now, think about that. There's a lot hinging, isn't there, on what that word uncleanness means. Like, how do you define what is uncleanness? Now, the historical, traditional teaching on this was that uncleanness meant marital unfaithfulness. And that's the definition that Jesus uses here as he brings us back to the heart of the law. But around the time of Jesus, there was a rabbi named Hillel. And he taught that uncleanness could be anything that the wife did which caused the husband displeasure. And by doing that, what Hillel did was he opened the door for the Jewish men to feel justified in marrying and divorcing women as much as they wanted and for whatever reason they wanted to. So you can see this illustrated in Matthew chapter 19 where again Jesus has asked this question about divorce. It says there in Matthew 19 verse 3 that the Pharisees came to him and they asked him this question, is it permissible to divorce your wife for any reason? Now that wording is, is important. Any reason because that's literally what they would do and that's what this guy Hillel taught and his teachings were very popular especially among men, you can imagine. Now, literally, they, Hillel would say, look, if your wife, if a wife burns her husband's food, that's grounds for divorce because she has now become unclean in his eyes. Another actual teaching of Hillel was that if a man saw another woman who he considered more beautiful than his wife, well, then in comparison, his wife had now become unclean in his eyes and he could give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And what they were saying, you know, and what they would say is, you know, God's commandment requires that you give a woman a certificate of divorce, the legal document when you divorce her. And that is, you know, what you got to do if you're going to do it. In other words, they thought the only point of God's heart uh, on marriage and divorce was that you provide the proper legal documentation. Right? And so here comes Jesus, and he says, no, you're missing the heart. You're missing the heart. And, and remember, Jesus isn't just going off here on marriage He's or, and marriage and divorce. He's using divorce as an illustration to illustrate his point. And his point is that at the heart of each and every one of God's commandments is this one central thing, love for God and love for other people. And he's using this ex- as an example. In other words, he's saying this. Do you guys think that really all that God cares about in regard to marriage is that you provide pro- 
proper legal documentation when you divorce your wife? That's not the heart of God for marriage. No, God's concern is love and fidelity. And this practice of just getting divorced and remarried to different people all the time, it completely disregards God's heart for marriage. There's nothing loving about treating a woman in that way. And the point of the commandment, the heart of the commandment, is not legal documentation. The heart of the commandment is love. And he says, you're breaking the heart of the commandment. Jesus is saying, God's heart for marriage is that you would be faithful to your spouse. That if you marry somebody, that you would treasure them, that you would cherish them, that you wouldn't try to manipulate them by threatening divorce or threatening to ruin their life if they don't do what you want. If you're married, don't, don't be keeping your eye out for someone better. Love your spouse and cherish them. And I would say that in our day and age in which it's no longer the case that only husbands can divorce their wives, but now wives can also divorce their husbands, I would say that this same principle applies to women as well. I think that women need to to take heed to this as well. In other words, this is the deal. Divorce is not something that should be used as a tool of manipulation. You know, I think this happens a lot in, uh, in many of you who are married. Maybe you've been there, you know. You know, married couple gets in an argument and one of them says, I don't know why you even married me. I mean, if you just dislike me this much, then why don't you just divorce me? And then the other one says, well, maybe you're right. Maybe we should get divorced. I mean, we're not so miserable being together. And of course, what they're both trying to do is get the other one's attention. But what they're doing, they're just doing it in a way that is so unhealthy because once you played that divorce card it's like pandora's box you can't you can't take that back once you put that card on the table you can't put it back in your hand right and so my advice for married couples is never ever use that word never don't play that card don't use that that's a don't use that as a tool of manipulation that is not loving to your spouse and it is not honoring to god and his design and purpose in marriage now in verse 32, Jesus makes these statements in which he links unjustified divorce with adultery. Now what, what's the point of what he's saying here? Here's the point. He's saying that illegitimate divorce gives place to adultery because God does not recognize that divorce. The state may recognize it, but it, it's not recognized by God. Jesus is bringing us back to the heart and the intent of God's commandments, which is love for God and love for others. And his emphasis here is on the permanency of marriage and the wrong of unjustified divorce. And let me tell you what, that went so much against the culture of that day. It flew in the face of the culture of that day in which there was this practice of easy divorce all the time. And so I believe it's also countercultural in our day. To, to emphasize permanency in marriage and the wrong of unjustified divorce. So let's continue from verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for... Uh, you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So one of the Ten Commandments was, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so people, you know, they had these debates. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to take the name of the Lord your God in vain? And they said, well, well one instance would be, if you made an oath, in other words, and you swore to God, you say, I swear to God that I'm going to do this or that this is true or whatever. And they said, if you swear to God and then you don't do what you said or you break your oath, 
or you say something that's not true, well, then that would be taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so here's what they came up with. They came up with a system uh, to kind of give themselves permission to lie. And here's what they would do. They would say, if you take an oath and you swear to God, then you have to keep that oath. But if you swear by anything else, you know, like the clock on the wall or the, you know, the ground on the, you know, dirt in the ground or whatever, then you're not required to keep your promise and you can literally like straight up lie to people to their face. It's like, you know, the equivalent is like when you're a kid and you would cross your fingers and then you, you got carte blanche, man. You can do anything you want, right? Like you can lie to people's face as long as you got your fingers crossed behind your back. You can promise to do things and you'd be like, you didn't see it. My fingers are crossed. Sorry, I don't have to do that. That's exactly what they were doing. That's exactly what they were doing. They would say, if you swear to God, then you are obligated to keep the promise. But otherwise, I mean, you could swear according to anything else, and, and you don't have to keep your word. And so here Jesus comes along, and he says, that is absolutely ridiculous. It flies in the face of the commandment, which is to love God and love other people. And you honor God and you love others by telling the truth and keeping your word. Jesus says, if you want to do something completely countercultural, here's what it is. I want you to say what you mean and mean what you say all the time. And I want you to be people of integrity. You shouldn't have to back up your statements with any kind of qualifiers, right? You should just tell people the plain truth. That is what honors God, and that is what is most loving towards other people. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now the law of Moses does teach this principle. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you know, some people look at that and they say, that is just absolutely barbaric, right? How terrible. But let me tell you this. If you think that that is barbaric, that's because you do not understand it in its proper context. See, uh, this saying is found in Exodus chapter 21, verse 24. And the context there is this. It was a rule, it was a guideline given to the judges of Israel. And that's the important part. It was given to judges as a limitation on excessive penalty. Because what is our human tendency, right? Our human tendency is, if you poke out my eye, then I'm going to poke out both your eyes. If you knock out one of my teeth, I want to see all your teeth knocked out, right? That's our human tendency. And so the law of Moses very wisely came in and said, no. The punishment must fit the crime. There is not permitted to have excessive retribution, and the penalty should always fit the crime. It was a principle, again, given to judges for how to govern how they ruled and prosecuted people who committed crimes. But what had happened over time is that people had taken that saying out of context, which is what often gets people into trouble in regard to the Bible, right? They took that saying out of context and they began to use this as a rule regarding personal conflict. In other words, if somebody insults you, then insult them right back. If somebody knocks out your tooth, then you should knock out their tooth. You've got to understand, that's taking out of context. This was meant to be a guideline for the judges of Israel not, and how to practice uh, you know, punishment of people who committed crimes. This was a law intended for civil governance and not for personal relationships. But Jesus says here, here's what he says. 
in your personal relationships. I don't want you to practice an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You all have no teeth and no eyes, right? In your personal relationship, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn to him the other one also. Now that's a very difficult saying, isn't it? But, but here's, here's something to think about. It's very interesting that Jesus says this phrase. Have you ever noticed this? He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, now assuming that most people are right-handed, if you're going to punch somebody in the face, you're probably going to hit their left cheek with your right hand. If you're going to slap somebody with an open-handed slap with your right hand, it's going to hit them on the left cheek. So how in the world do you hit somebody on the right side of their face with your right hand? Well, there's one way, a backhanded slap. And a backhanded slap in that culture was an insult. It wasn't a physical assault on somebody to injure them. It was an insult to their person, their character. It was a dismissive slap. I mean, we kind of got this comic picture, right, that we get from, uh, you know, I guess it would be the romantic period, you know, Victorian era where, where the gentleman takes off his glove very slowly and then slaps the guy across the face. That's what we're talking about here. It's an insult. It's not meant to cause physical injury, but it is meant to insult a person. And so that's very important in understanding what Jesus is saying here because many people have been confused by this saying. They've wondered, is what Jesus teaching here that the Christian way to respond to evil or to, you know, abuse is to just be a doormat? Just like never defend yourself? If someone wants to hit you in the head with a baseball bat, then let them hit you in the head twice. Well, what about, uh, you know, a woman whose husband strikes her? Should she just tolerate being... Uh, being beaten by her husband and let him do it some more, right? If a person hits you with a baseball bat, should you just stand there and let him hit you some more with a baseball bat? That's not at all what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is this. In your personal relationships, if someone insults you, don't insult them back. Don't retaliate. Like, here's an example. When you're driving, right, and someone cuts you off, so what do you do? You speed up, and you get in the other lane, and then you cut them off, right? Teach them a lesson. No, Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. Just let it go, man. He says, Some, someone says something to you that hurts your feelings, so you take a jab right back at them. No, don't do that. Don't retaliate. Oh, well, you know, if you're going to treat me that way, well, then I'm going to treat you the same way. I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. You're going to see how it feels. Jesus says, no. Don't return evil for evil. Leave vengeance, leave retribution, leave that up to God. That's his prerogative, not yours. Don't return evil for evil, but instead, here's what I want you to do. Overcome evil with good. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we should be weak in the face of evil. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that we should have the strength of character the incredible strength of character to not retaliate when people hurt us. That is not weakness. That takes incredible strength of character. That requires a love for that other person, which is more powerful than your desire to satisfy yourself in the moment by lashing out and striking back at the person who has insulted you or hurt you or offended you. And let me tell you what, that is incredibly countercultural, isn't it? The majority of our culture says, if somebody hurts you, if somebody insults you, then get them back. Treat them the same way. Give them a taste of their own medicine. If someone cuts you off, you should cut them off. If someone insults you, if someone slaps you, you should slap them back. Jesus says, no, do not return evil for evil. Be willing to bear an insult without retaliating or striking back. 
That's what Jesus is saying here when he says don't resist the person who is evil. Now understand, Jesus is not saying that evil should never be resisted. He, he's, he's not saying that the Christian thing to do is allow other people to abuse you or mistreat you or walk all over you. Jesus demonstrated with his life that evil must be resisted. That was the whole point of his life, that evil must be resisted, that evil should absolutely be resisted, and that resisting evil is part of doing the will of God, and resisting evil is a key part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus isn't saying that evil should never be resisted. What he's saying is that the way to resist evil in the area of personal relationships, the way to resist evil is not to respond with evil, to evil, right? Not, not just to, if someone insults you and you insult them right back, well then guess what? Instead of one evil deed, now there are two evil deeds. In other words, you just brought more evil into the world. You didn't overcome evil, you brought more of it into the world. And so the way Jesus tells us to resist evil is to let the evil stop with you. In other words, the buck stops here, right? I am not going to let evil win. I'm not gonna perpetuate it any further. Evil stops here. I'm not going to be consumed by evil, but I will overcome evil. And if that means that I have to absorb an insult and not satisfy myself by striking back, then I will do that. Because I love God and I love other people more, so much more, that I refuse to repay evil with evil. I will resist evil. I will not allow it to overcome me, but I will overcome evil with good. And I will act in love even when other people don't act in love towards me. Do you see that this is the way of Jesus? Do you see that this is the, the way that he has modeled for us to live with his own life? Ultimately, this is at the heart of the gospel, that God in Christ has responded to us in love, even though we have often acted towards him in evil. Even though by our actions, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we have insulted him and we have showed disregard for him. Instead of giving tit for tat, God has shown us love and mercy and grace. And what it means to be a Christian is to live in response to the ways that God has loved you in, the areas of, in every area of your life. Loving God and loving others because God first loved you and now you get to respond to the grace of God that you have received by loving others in the same ways that he has loved you. Now keep in mind this distinction that's being made here between the role of the law and justice in society versus the idea of exacting justice in personal relationships. There's a difference there. In society, in the justice system, the principle should be, and it really should be, an eye for an eye, meaning that crimes should be punished with punishments that fit crimes. It shouldn't be excessive, but neither should it be too easy, right? It shouldn't be too uh, light either. It should fit the crime. But in your personal relationships, here's what he's saying. Don't be a judge, man. Don't, don't go around trying to hand out penalties to people who have wronged you in some way or another. So if someone commits a crime against you, you should call the police. By all means, let justice take its course. And if the thing goes to trial or whatever, then you should go to trial and you should testify against that person. But in your personal dealings with that person, love them, forgive them, visit them in jail, bake them cookies, tell them about Jesus, and don't retaliate against them or try to get even with them. You see the difference there. 
You know, some people have taken Jesus' words here about turning the other cheek to mean that the Christian thing to do in the face of evil is to do nothing or to tolerate abuse. That's not what Jesus is saying. Evil should be resisted. Abuse should never be tolerated. Rather, authorities should be involved. Justice and discipline should take place. And Christians should help rather than hinder the justice system. Now, getting back to the idea of the law of love, the most loving thing to do to our neighbors is to let the justice system uh, do its job and let people who commit crimes face prosecution. But on a personal level, we choose not to perpetuate the evil that is done against us, but we are so bold as to say, the evil will stop with me. I will not respond in evil. I will not retaliate. I will forgive. I will not perpetuate evil by doing something evil myself against the person who did evil to me. Verse 40, we, we read this interesting statement of Jesus. He says, if anyone would, have, would, would sue you and take your tunic, we'll let him have your cloak as well. The tunic being the inner garment, the, the cloak being the outer garment. And he says this, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What Jesus is describing here is radical discipleship. And it all boils down to this idea. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, Judea was a land which was under military occupation at this time. It was occupied by the Roman army, and the people of Judea were not happy that they were there. In fact, they very much were bitter that this was happening to them. They didn't like it at all. And the Roman military... Uh, said that they had the right, they gave themselves the right, that any Roman soldier could conscript any civilian at any time to carry things for him, but not forever, only up to one mile. So that was the rule. One mile. And a mile in their society was measured by a thousand steps. So imagine here, you've got a Roman soldier, he's carrying a heavy pack, and he sees this Jew from Judea standing on the side of the road. And the Roman soldier points out and says, you, get over here. And he forces him to carry that pack for one mile, 1,000 steps. And you can imagine how this poor, oppressed Jew would feel, right? He would be full of what? Anger. Hatred. He would, he would just have been humiliated in front of other people having to carry this pack for this Roman soldier, being forced to do something against his will. And he would carry that pack, you can imagine, counting the steps He's going to carry it exactly 1,000 steps, not a step further. And as soon as he gets to that 1,000 step, he's going to drop that pack. And with all the hatred he can muster in his eyes, he's going to look that Roman soldier in the eye and walk away. Another situation he says here, somebody sues you and they want to take everything you have. Now, now think about this. This is actually really interesting. It's kind of confusing. Somebody wants to take your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Now this is referring to something which is actually quite astounding. The law of Moses had a provision, and it said that the one thing that you could never take away from somebody was their cloak, their outer garment. And the reason was because the cloak and the outer garment was used for sleeping. They kind of wrapped themselves up in it and sleep at night. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. If somebody is so mean to you that they sue you, and their goal is to take everything you've got, in fact, literally, they even take the clothes off your back, the one thing that the law would not allow them to take was your cloak. But Jesus says, I want you to give that to them too. 
Give them the one thing which you don't have to give to them, your cloak. Give that to them too if they're going to be so mean as to try and uh, sue you for everything you've got. What is Jesus saying here? What's the point? Jesus' point is this. If someone treats you badly, if someone treats you in an unloving way, they, they try to humiliate you, they try to just wreck you, then here's what you do. You transform that situation. You take control of that situation by literally going the extra mile. Not because you have to, but because you choose to. In an act of love. A free choice of love for that person who is treating you terribly. You're trying to humiliate me. You're trying to hurt me. Well, you know what? I'm going to choose to give you even more than what you want from me. I, I like doing things that I choose to do. Don't we all like doing things that we choose to do? Right? And, and I'm not going to choose to show just what you want. I'm not going to choose to just do what you want. I'm going to choose to show radical love to you even though you are being terrible to me. That's the point here. Why? Because I refuse to be overcome by evil. I'm not going to let evil overcome me. Instead, I am going to overcome evil with good. And even if you treat me terribly, I'm going to respond to you all that much more in love. Don't you see how radical this is? Don't you see how radically counter-cultural this kind of living is? What if you and I actually live this way? Paul the Apostle, he says this, if you live this way, you will shine like the stars in the night sky. You will stand out. You know what, what you're doing in each of these situations when you go the extra mile, when you turn the other cheek, when you give even more to the person who's trying to take everything you have? When you do that, you are removing the teeth of that evil deed. You're taking its, its sting away. You are stopping the evil. It stops there with you and you are overcoming evil with good. Let's continue on from verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Have you ever seen those people who have like a Subaru and they've got 2,000 bumper stickers on it, right? Like I see these people all the time. In fact, it's kind of nice to get stuck behind them out of the traffic light because then you've got something to do for the next two minutes until it turns green. <laughs> and you know there's the ever-popular Coexist bumper sticker. And you know when I first moved here from Europe, I, uh, I actually thought that was the Colorado license plate, right? Like I, I fully expected that I was going to be issued one of those when I paid my uh, car registration. I was kind of disappointed when it didn't come in the mail, right? Well, anyway, I saw another bumper sticker the other day, and it said this, enemies are friends whom you choose not to understand. Now let that one sink in. It's pretty deep, right? Enemies are just friends who you choose not to understand. And just let that sink in. I wonder what the Christians in the Middle East would say if you told them, you know those ISIS guys who are like hunting you down and stuff? They're not your enemies. They're your friends. You just choose, you choose not to understand them. You should really put some more effort into understanding them, and maybe you guys could be friends, right? It's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says you do have enemies. Guess what? You do. You know what? There are some people out there, they don't like you, some people who are going to be out to get you, 
And yeah, they do evil. There are people in the world who do evil. And even if you understood them, you just understand, wow, they're really, really evil. And you know what? But he says, you know what you should do? There are such a thing as enemies. And you know what you should do? You should love them. Crazy. Seriously. Think about it. This is radical. He says, you do have enemies. And you know what you should do to them? You should love them. And you should pray for them. And you should bless them. Let me tell you what. That is a radical thing to say. Maybe there's somebody in your life, let me ask you, is there somebody in your life who either you consider them an enemy or maybe they consider you an enemy? Either way, what are you doing to love them? What are you doing to bless them? Are you praying for them? Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm waiting for them to come to me first because they're the one who did me wrong. No, that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. Here's what he's saying. And, And pray for them. And not just like those prayers of David, you know, from the Psalms, like, bash their teeth in and break their heads open, that kind of prayer, that doesn't count, right? And, uh, and not like, these, here's the other one. Okay, I'm going to pray for my enemies. Lord, would you please show them that I'm right and they're wrong. Amen, right? But like really honestly praying for them. Like God, you know my heart and you know that I just do not like that person. And I'm pretty sure they don't like me either. But Lord, would you please bless them? Would you please make them prosper? Would you pour out favor upon their lives? Would you show them your love and your presence? I know they don't deserve it, Lord, but you know what? Neither do I. So, Lord, I want to love them, but I just don't. So, Lord, would you please change my heart? Please help me, Lord. If you pray like that, I guarantee God's going to hear that prayer, and he will honor that prayer. And if you're serious about it, he will change your heart. Notice what Jesus says here. It's huge. He says, then you will be like, you will be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Then, when you do what? When you love people who don't love you. When you bless people who don't deserve it. Then you will be like your Father in heaven. If you love your enemies, if you act the way that, towards them that God acts towards you, you will be sons of your Father in heaven. You will be imitating God with your actions. You will be loving and living like him. Because that is what God does. God shows love to his enemies. And that is part of the message of the gospel, that God loved you and God blessed you even when you were an enemy of him in your heart. Even at that time, God loved you so much that he gave his life for you. An enemy. And he did it with the hope that you, an enemy, might actually become a friend. He loved you and he blessed you even when you were an enemy. And that is the example we have to follow. The Old Testament teaches that we should love our neighbors. But nowhere does it ever say that we should hate our enemies. But these guys had added that on kind of as the logical conclusion. Oh, so I guess we need to define who our neighbors are because those are the people we love. And I guess the people we don't love, they would be our enemies. And so we should hate them, right? That, that was something that people had tacked on in Jesus' day. They said, oh, surely God wants us to love our neighbors, but surely he can't expect us to love our enemies. I mean, that would just be crazy. But Jesus says, no, your neighbors, guess what? A neighbor is every person, and that includes your enemies. So if you want to fulfill the heart of God's commandment, which is to love your neighbor, that includes loving your enemies. And Jesus says, if you love those who love you, if you're nice to people who are nice to you, well, whoop-de-doo, right? You're going to get a big gold star for it, a big pat on the back. Good job. Everybody does that. Everybody's nice to people who are nice to them. That's not special. That's not different. Jesus is reminding us of this very foundational point that the character 
of his disciples. If you want to be a disciple of him, that means that your life needs to be, your character needs to be noticeably different than the character of everybody else in the world. And the point is this, if you're following Jesus, if you're living a life of a disciple, then you will stand out. It will be noticeable. It's the kind of thing where people will say, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. She's actually married to the same husband, and they even have a thriving marriage. They're not just surviving. They're thriving after this many years. Wow, you really don't see that very much these days, do you? You know, he doesn't talk disrespectfully about his wife. He seems like he treats her well. That's kind of different. Right? He's like the most trustworthy person I know. She always says what she means, and she always means what she says. I don't know a lot of people like that. You know, one time I saw this guy uh, totally insult him to his face, and he didn't retaliate. In fact, he responded in a way that was just so gracious. And man, it was weird, right? Like, she, she doesn't only love people who are nice to her. She actually noticeably loves people who do not like her who are rude to her. I've never seen someone act like that before. It's countercultural, don't you see? It honors God and it shows love for other people. It gets to the very heart of the commandments. And there's only really one way to become like this. There's only one way to be transformed to the point where you go from living and thinking just like everybody else to living and thinking in a way that's absolutely countercultural. And it's found here in the, the final verse of chapter five. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if a person could live in the way that Jesus tells us to live here in this section, they would be perfect, wouldn't they? I mean, here's the point of what Jesus is saying in this section. This is what it means to be a good person in God's eyes. In order for God to consider you good enough for his standards, good enough to go to heaven, here's what you got to do. You got to keep all the commandments of God perfectly, not only outwardly, inwardly as well not only in your actions do you have to be perfect but you have to be perfect in your heart and in your thoughts as well and Jesus sums it up here he answers the question how good do you have to be to be good enough for God how good do you have to be to get into heaven how good do you have to be to be good enough to be accepted by God and loved by God and Jesus says here's the answer here's the standard you got to be perfect what do you think people would say if you told them that. You know, remember those 60% of people I told you about who say, I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. I never done anything that bad. What if you would tell them, okay, well, here's the standard. Here's God's standard. Here's what God says is good enough. Perfect. And they would say, well, wait, wait a second. What are, you, what are you talking about? Perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? So surely that can't be the standard because, it, you know, it's got to be something more like people who try hard enough to be good, pretty good most of the time, you know, except for, for college and Fridays, right? And, but, but you see, that's the standard that Jesus sets here. He says it's the most plain and simple term possible. Perfect. That's the standard. You want to go to heaven? You want to be right with God? Here's the standard. Perfect. But they say, whoa, well, I mean... Nobody's perfect, man. Well, actually, there was somebody. There was somebody. The man who said these words. He didn't just talk about these things. He actually lived them out, every single one of them, in perfection. Jesus Christ. He's the only one, the only one who is righteous before God, the only one who is truly a good person, the only one who's good enough to be justified before God, the only one good enough to go to heaven. And the good news of the gospel is this. 
that there is a righteousness available apart from you keeping the commandments. You can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account through faith in him. Romans chapter 3 says this, but the righteousness of God has now been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is the point of everything that Jesus is saying here. That the only path to be right before God, the only path to get to heaven is through him. He is the only good person who's ever lived. And if you put your faith in him, God will credit his righteousness to your account by faith and you will be saved. Not only because, not because at all, not because at all of your goodness, but because of Jesus' righteousness given to you through Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection from the grave. It can all be yours through faith in him today. Amen? Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you that you lived what you taught, and you lived this life of perfection. Lord, we thank you that by faith we can receive this righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for making it so clear to us that we cannot be saved on our own merits, that we cannot come to you on our own merits. Lord, thank you that you make us righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here today who doesn't have that confidence of being right with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe they've never made that conscious decision that today is the day when I will put my faith in Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness, that I might be right with God, that I might have eternal life. But I pray that they would do that today. As we sing this next song, that they would be speaking to you in their heart, that they would be receiving by faith that which you would give them. But for the rest of us here, we want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we get this glimpse into who Jesus was. And we want to be these kind of disciples who are transformed from just being just like everybody else to being different being like Jesus. Because we see that truly that is perfection. So Lord, would you do that work in our heart? Help us to be people who live and who love like you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was brought to you by Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com.